0: Last week, we started a brief look into the story and the meaning of Christmas, and from the book of Matthew chapter 1, that's why we were camping last week, and we reminded ourselves that even before the foundations of the universe, even before, you know, all the, the universe was created, the stars, the cosmos, the sun, and the planets, and everything beautiful, as you may see it if you love astronomy the Godhead was still in existence. And the Godhead existed in perfect unity. And Christmas season then becomes a season when we remember this God who is majestic, holy, beyond description, and we remember that he came in the form of flesh to dwell with the sinful and alienated people. The book of John says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what the real meaning of Christmas is. That when God, Elohim, created the world, everything was in perfect harmony. There was a sense of tranquility. There was unity between God and man, God and the environment, God and the created order. There was perfect harmony even between man and man. Man and the ecosystem, God and man, there was perfect unity. And we called this last week, you know, a state of shalom. And we were saying that, you know, the the Jews, even today, they greet each other shalom. But just beyond the surface, that this greeting has a bigger meaning. That is divine harmony. A desire to experience that divine harmony. Completeness. Perfect peace safety, as God had intended even before the creation and the establishment of the world. But man sinned and rebelled and desired to live outside the fellowship of this shalom, outside this unity, this harmony, this tranquility. Man didn't want to live within the confines of this divine shalom, as we called it. And so he defied and denied the divine will, not to eat that which he was commanded not to. So he defied the divine order, and from there, everything in creation shattered, bringing tragically an end of the original shalom. And there wasn't any more shalom between man and God Man and man, man and even the the, the, the ecosystem. Now we have introduced some words like climate change. It wasn't there. Endangered species. These were not the things that were there in the original creation order. I mean, God had created everything to be in perfect unity and harmony. So Christmas reminds us what God did, especially to this lost shalom, and the fact that we were helpless to do anything about it. We were unable to restore this peace. But God himself instituted or planned our redemption on how again we can be able to experience this peace. This son that we are celebrating, this king, this Jesus, Emmanuel, Isaiah would call him the prince of peace. And even when Christ again was ascending, was just about to ascend. He says, my peace, I leave you with my peace, and I do not give it as the world does. So he is the prince of peace, the prince of shalom, so to speak. And so Christmas is to be, we are reminded of God's delight in liberating that which was enslaved by sin. And out of that then, Christmas then becomes the most anticipated event in the history of man. Our modern culture has a knack, you know, of trivializing this momentous event. And we have, again, been ignoring the profound and embracing the superficial by calling this season, you know, happy holiday. It's just a season to break. It's just a season to be able to look at my dividends and how the bond and the stock market is doing. How is it closing the year? But beyond that, there is a deeper meaning that we shouldn't forget. There is more than making merry. There is more than spending without care. There is more than resting from our daily tasks and duties. And so last week, we looked from Matthew chapter 1, from verse 1 all through to verse 17, and we looked at different characters in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, we said, you know, records the legal lineage of Jesus. And also, if you want to compare that with the biological lineage, you read the genealogy you know, from the book of Luke, which is the, or narrates the biological lineage through Mary. Jesus, and we saw that Jesus didn't come from a very clinically clean lineage. He came through a messy heritage, so to speak. And if you ever doubt about the things that are happening in our families, even as Kathy did ask us to share the things that we desire for our families. And most likely we are sharing some of the messy things within the context of our families. Let us remember that also Christ came through such. So we are in good company with Christ. He came through a messy lineage, but there is hope. And so we shouldn't lose hope, even as we look into this season, especially for for the sake of our families. Christmas is when the kinship bonds are tested the most during this time of Christmas. And whether these bonds, they are weak or strong or even non-existent. So no matter the case, every family has a case of messiness, so to speak. And so you shouldn't despair. You shouldn't give up. You shouldn't lose hope. Because Christ also came, you know, Christ didn't come from a very clean, you know, clean lineage. Or a lineage of good name, of pedigree. He came through some of the guys that were seeing. There were prostitutes in there. They were people who had, you know, who were not righteous in a way. Some were liars. You get some were liars. Some killed David. He's called the son of David. And yet we know the things that David did. Some of them. And so, today we pick it up from where we left last week. That is from verse 18. We pick it up from verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but, they came, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, and that's the word of the lord thanks be to the lord indeed from verse 18 we see that this is how the birth of jesus christ came about his mother was his mother mary was pledged other versions will say that he, you know she was betrothed to be married to joseph and in the jewish culture then and even now the loss of engagement or betrothal and marriage were very elaborate and stronger than perhaps ours. And so during this time, this girl, a young girl, you know, has been promised to get married, has, she has been betrothed to, and it wasn't as an engagement as we know of what engagement is at the moment. In this culture, it was a big thing, it was a big event, you know, it was a community event. And the actual betrothal, you know, the, 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 the couple will be betrothed. There will be a promise, you know, to be able to live, you know, a, a life of um, what we could call, you know, uh, sexual fidelity. And actually it had a name. I'm trying to remember that name. It was called Kiddushin, you know, the, 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 that, that betrothal. And here the couple took a solemn vow to live as husband and wife but they're not going to live as husband and wife at that moment. They had to wait for about, you know, 9 to 12 months. And it's because then there were no scans to test if one was pregnant. So this period also served as a pregnancy test period. You know, is there anything? Have you done anything? You get, And so within those months, if someone was unfaithful, then they will be, everything will be visible. And during that time of, you know, that engagement, that kiddushin, the, the, the book of Song of Songs kind of records that there will be ornaments that they will give to each other. And one of the ornaments was a ring. And the ring will be inscribed these words, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. So it was a big public event where everybody knew who was betrothed to who and who and, you know, and so and so. And so it, there, there's no way that you could have hid yourself under the cover. Everybody knew that that girl, that man belongs to so and so as much as they were not living together or even enjoying the full benefits of a marriage life. So for Mary, she was here about 14 to 16 years of age. That culture, people get married that early. I, don't, I mean, it can't happen now. I mean, I would not believe it. My daughter who is just about to turn 10 to tell me anything about marriage at the moment. But then in that culture, that's what would happen. You get? And so this wasn't easy for her. That just the time that she's planning to settle down, then there's something that is happening in her womb. She had dreams, you know, and she was in the middle of planning her life and her wedding. And out of nowhere, a great disruption happens. And who is the culprit? God is the culprit. She was pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it seems like God had answered her prayer too early. This is what she would have desired, but not at that moment. So her prayer has been answered too early, and no one knows what to do with it. But Luke records how, in the book of Luke chapter 1, verse 38, records how she responded to this disruption with unwavering faith and total obedience. Luke says that Mary answered, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Even when God came with this news that will disrupt her life, that everything will be at stake, she responds in obedience. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And yes, she's going to enjoy motherhood, but even later, during the dying, the the crucifixion of Christ, she will see this son that she carried in her womb dying and breathing his last. So I was trying to think, what do we do when God disrupts our lives? How do we respond? Do we respond in worship and submission as Mary did? Or even do we think that God, you know, has ill motives about me? God, I was going this direction and you have disrupted me. And out of that, everything again is in disarray. Do we think that God is irrelevant when he disrupts us or even benign? Friends, God is delighted when he interrupts our routines of life. But we respond in faith. We respond in faith and in obedience. I want to believe that God is delighted by such a man or woman. So she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. And our encouragement today is that when that divine disruption comes, when it comes along your way, let us respond in faith, because God is a promise keeper, and whatever He has promised, He will do. And it's not so that you know He may, be, you know He may be happy or enjoy. It's for your own good. That when we respond in faith, when that disruption comes, it is for our own good. So this. Child, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Isaiah, as we saw last week, gives us a glimpse of how this is going to happen. You know, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a child is given. That a child is born through the natural process, but also to us, a son is given. That is the deity of Jesus and the two natures have to work together. You know, there is a technical name. It's, it's, it's called hypostatic union. Please do not remember this. You, you know, not be asked in heaven, do you know hypostatic union? You know, and all that. Do not try to remember anything like that. You'll not miss heaven. But that's just a technical word, meaning that these are two natures in one. The deity of Christ and his humanity, which is going to gain through the natural process of birth that the one who has always existed. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says who being in very nature god. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That he is the image of the invisible god, the firstborn of all creation. This one this deity was poured to humanity. It is a scandal of grace, actually, if you look at it. That the creator, the one who created everything, the visible and in the invisible, infinitely distinct God will dwell in a womb of a 14-year-old girl. And Mary, out of this, become the, you know, the, the mother of God or the bearer of God. Sort of a stark comparison between her and Eve, the first mother. Eve who bore humanity with that original sin. But for the first time, a woman will carry to term one without sin. So we see that this was a divine disruption with a purpose. And this divine disruption does not mean that, you know, it, brings, it makes life easy. We read from the next verses that it brought a very big or a very deep dilemma. This is what it says, verse 19. Because Joseph was her husband, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, I mean, this this, this man is having sleepless nights, so to speak. He is bothered. He's wondering now, how am I going to do? My beloved has been found to be pregnant. And I didn't take part in that. And at this moment, Joseph doesn't even know the conversation that Mary has had with God. Mary is aware. But to our friend Joseph here, he doesn't know. And so he labors, he thinks and struggles with this at night. And we see that this wasn't an easy thing. You know, we normally just mention Joseph, you know, just in passing, but this wasn't an easy thing. His plans to enjoy the companionship of his beloved is disrupted. And he had a few options that we can see from this story here. When he learned that this girl is pregnant and presumed a case of unfaithfulness. There were three options, actually. Option one, it is to expose her publicly and to put to shame, to put her to shame. And this was guided by Deuteronomy chapter 22, that if someone is unfaithful, you know, they need to go through a public disgrace. They need actually to be stoned to death because they are disgraceful to the people of Israel, to the chosen people of Israel. So option one is to go out there and say, you know what, this girl that I was planning to get married to, you know, she is unfaithful. And out of that, he'll be able even to gain public sympathy, so to speak. You know, if you come and say, you know what, I was faithful, but she wasn't. You know, even out of that, people will feel we year for you, and even immediately after that, you know, you can have, you know, plenty of people to choose from. But Joseph thinks and ponders these things deeply. Option two was to marry her, according to the regulations that are found in the book of Exodus, chapter 22 again, which presumes that now if she marries her they will be it will be assumed that they had extramarital affair or you know they had a physical relationship and this would bring him social stigma do you read there that he was a righteous man you know by the time mother is writing to us you know that he was a righteous man it was visible even to other people that this is a godly man this is a good man he's a good man so to speak truthful, man but now if he marries her and people are very very good and candid in keeping and you know keeping the dates you get don't we do that you know if you, if you if you if you if you see someone if you even for myself if i officiate a wedding here and then i see you know i can count i remember the day that you know this guy is and so if the math is not mathing you know, I need to call you. Why did you play me? And it happens to pastors. So this is what was going through his mind. There will be social stigma, and he will be deemed an unrighteous man. And now this one will bring disrepute to himself. He will be at a worse of place. Number three is to offer her a certificate of divorce. And Joseph decided to take this third option. But there's no way, even if it says there, the Bible says there, to divorce her quietly. Divorce wasn't something that is, was quiet then. It needed witnesses. It needed people to be there to actually see that actually a divorce has happened. They, need even, they needed even to go to the synagogue and break this bond, break this vow, break this covenant. But even if he would gather some men who are, or witnesses of great discretion, you know, still the story would be known out there, but he decided to still honor this girl and to protect her from shame and from reproach. And these are great things that we can learn from this young guy here, Joseph. And perhaps, um, you know, as I was preparing and thinking about this, I felt like we also need, during this time of Christmas, that we need to repent from the times that we have magnified the mistakes or the sins of others in our families or even in the church, the family of God. Here we have a model from Joseph of dealing with others when they have hurt us deeply, when they have sinned against us, when they are seen, purported sin, because at this point he didn't know actually that Mary was innocent. He thought that Mary is the culprit, And he is a victim. Even when his plans for future have been disrupted, Joseph still wanted to honor this girl. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so we we learn from Joseph that, you know, we need to cover others. We need not to magnify their sins. So friends, if we are ever called to make a very hard and painful decision. Let us choose to make it very tender. Let us make it, let's, let it have a soul. Even when we are hurting, let us cover others. Even when their sins or issues come into the limelight. And that is the most godly decision you can ever make, especially when someone has wronged you. But I kept on wondering, last week we looked at the heritage of this guy, Joseph, and they were not very, the heritage was not very perfect, as we saw. What would make him to become a righteous, the Bible even to say that he was a righteous man. I think I was encouraged to know that even when the heritage, or even our lineage, is a bit messy, God still can preserve a remnant for himself. God still can have someone who is righteous, even in your lineage. And I pray that you are the one. And if you are not the one, because we know. Please repent, you know, and turn. But if you are here, please know that God preserves a remnant for himself. And thank God that you are the one. And out of that, may you ask God to give you the grace to bear that responsibility and to bear that challenge. So we learn from Joseph here When you are met with a case of deep dilemma, respond in obedience when you can, and trust in the bigger picture, because the angel of the Lord tells him, and you're going to see that shortly, that now take Mary as your wife. You know, the options that he didn't want. The first option, he was a righteous man. He said, no, this one, I'm not going to put her into public disgrace. The second option, hey, when I take this guy, this girl, people will think that I'm you, know, I'm, you know, I'm not a righteous man. It is going to, you know, I'm going to bear the cost. So he went with that option. God was saying, no, don't take the third option. Take the second option. And even you yourself, you're going to bear the cost. And obedience has a cost. But it is not in vain. So the, this was a hard matter because after that, verse 20 says, that when he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. And I was wondering, why would the angel call him son of David? And yet his father was, do you know who his father was? We looked at it last week. Do you remember from the lineage story? His father was Jacob. He's not called Joseph, son of Jacob. He's called Joseph, son of David. And perhaps in a way to show that this was a big thing to show the intensity of this angelic visitation. And again, maybe to remind him, because he was a righteous man, he was a man who loved the law of the Lord, to remind him David's throne is at stake because the son of David is the one who will legally succeed the throne of David. So I think the angel is trying to remind him, hey, this is not an easy message. Joseph, son of David, Friends, some matters of life that may come along our way, even during this time of Christmas, we can only resolve them with the involvement of God. God had to come because this was a heavy matter to Joseph. And because of what is at stake, the angel tells Joseph, you know what, please proceed and marry this girl Mary. Because Jesus will not be born out of wedlock because he came to fulfill the law. So he must be born in the right right way and in the right family context. God comes and addresses his fears. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And again, Joseph, out of that, he's given a very honorable task. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins. Out of this, out of this divine or deep dilemma, God comes with a divine revelation. And out of this, God gave him the joy and the honor of naming God or giving God a name. The godly man names the manly God, so to speak. Jesus, which means that he saves And this is not a political salvation. This is not even saving them from the Roman occupation that was happening in that time. This is not to save the people even from oppression, but to save them even from a bigger and a greater oppression that resides within the human soul. And that is sin. Sin is the biggest oppression that denies us that uh, shalom, that peace with God. And he's asked, you know, you are going to give him that name, Jesus, Emmanuel. And we have been singing about, you know, uh, we've been singing all that even today morning. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will be with the child and give birth to our son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And God reveals this to this man, to Joseph. And he reminds him that the son that is to be born to you, this one who saves, this Emmanuel, God himself, God with us. And imagine that they had stayed for over 400 years. Everything was silent. No prophets, no theophanies, nothing. For 400 over 400 years, they didn't know. When will God ever speak? God is distant and as years passed, God was becoming distant and distant and distant, away from them. But now this angel comes and says, Now this son to be born is Emmanuel, which means God for us, God with us, so to speak. And friends, God becomes, you know, of supreme value because of what he offers you. He offers his, you know, he offers his presence, you know, to be with you. In all the valleys and the hills of life. So, if you want to go beyond the familiar story of the baby in the manger, you know, as we, you know, the nativity scene describes and portrays, if we want to go beyond that, we need to look at what this birth of Christ means for us, for me and you. What does it mean? And may it remind you that the true meaning is God with us, this God whom we were separated away from, now becomes God who will be with us in all the seasons of life. And so friends, whether in moments of pain or pleasure, a moment of darkness, a moment of grief, or even in a moment of doubt or even in despair, may you be reminded about this hope in God that God, Emmanuel, is God with us, God with you. And may you learn even to trust in him more and more. And may you know that he is there with you. He's not a distant God. He He does not send representatives. He came himself to be that Emmanuel, to be God with us, to dwell with us, and to identify with our weaknesses and even our struggles. And so even with all the challenges of life, there could be many. There could be spiritual, financial, emotional, or whatever area that you are in either a moment of joy or even not so joyous moments, may you be reminded that God is Emmanuel, God with you. And that's what we need, the moment of great shalom, the moment of peace with God, the moment that we know that indeed we are not walking and we are not doing life alone. And so even as Pastor Kaffee was leading us and asking us, what are the things that we need to pray for our family? May you remember this, that God is with you that God is with us even during this time of Christmas. And so my prayer, and our prayer as your pastors, is that indeed during this time, that you are going to sense the presence of God in every situation. Some of the prayers, God has answered them. Some of them, and there could be many, God hasn't answered them. But he is a God who is not distant. He's a God who is close to you. And we only gain this because of the gift of Christmas. The time of Christmas is not a time to go out there and sin and run away from God. It's actually a time to behold our God, to see him, and to worship him, that he came for us. And out of that, we are not flying blind. We have our God to guide us. And so I pray, friends, that you be able to reflect on these things, and out of that, you're going to enjoy, indeed, a season of Christmas, and you be able to reflect on that and be able to praise him. And as the word of God says, we pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you even in this time of Christmas. That the Lord will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord will turn his face towards you and give you peace. That shalom. That he came because he's God with us. He is the Prince of Peace. May you see that in your life and may you see that even in your uh, family And even as you gather with your people or whether you be alone, may you sense the ever, the enduring peace of God, that shalom, and he came so that it can be restored. May you have a beautiful time of Christmas and we look forward to even to a blessed time, a blessed year, 2024. And may the Lord bless you.